All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Uh, thank you again for being here. And Sarah, thank you for your courage to share your story. And uh, it's always cool to see how uh, God's working and moving in many ways. And, you know, we believe that for us, when, if we say we're pro-life, we don't just mean that it's pro-life is, is for unborn baby. It's, it's for after birth as well. And so as a church, we want to support families, uh, kids, parents. Uh, and and as it, for us, it's not just before that. It's pro-life. Is, and so we thank you that your organization provides a lot of services to care for families. And that's why we invest so heavily in our kids' ministry, our single moms' ministry, um, young families, our youth ministry. Uh, we believe that, you know, there's a lot of it's, it's life's difficult journey, and there's a church that cares and wants to uh, work with um, everybody to experience life and life in Jesus as well. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 6. We are, you are in the warm service. This is good. Most, most of you look pretty warm. So the earlier one, you start off a little bit, you know, it's a little cold to get started, but uh, so glad to have you with us here today. We're in a study through the book of Acts, and uh, the study, we're calling it Unstoppable, and it's a story of the church and the beginning of how the church started and why is it still continuing to this day? Uh, 2,000 years later, what is it that made it unstoppable? So we've been kind of going through that a little bit, took a little pause during the Christmas season, and so we're back in. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Now, I need to warn you right now, uh, we're going to cover a ton of ground. We're going to start in uh, verse 8 all the way through chapter 7. And so because of that, uh, we're not going to read every verse. We'll give you extra credit if you go home and read it on your own and a uh, little extra work there. But uh, so we're going to cover a ton of ground today, and uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. So uh, as we get started, just pray with me if you would. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you in the ways that you move. And I pray now that uh, your, your words would be mine. And that, God, everything that we do is uh, pointing our hearts and our lives back to you. God, we want to discover life in you and you alone. So we thank you for your word and ask that you change and transform us. In your name, amen. All right, so Acts chapter 6, uh, before we get into it, let me just get you a little update of where we are. Um, started off in the very beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 1, it starts with Jesus gives a commission, he gives a mission to the church, and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the very first uh, thing, or the final words of Jesus to his church was this, uh, this challenge and this idea of, this is what I'm calling you to do. And, and they would start and be witnesses to Jesus and his life right there in Jerusalem, uh, which is where they were. And then Judea, Samaria is a region just a little bit outside of Jerusalem. Many of the people who lived in that region were of Jewish descent, or a lot of them were what they would consider half, uh, that's half Jewish as far as a half Hebrew is their bloodline. And then to the ends of the earth obviously relates to the ends of the earth. So that would be everywhere else. So right here in chapter 6, where we're at is the church is still in Jerusalem. The witness has not left this region. It is still centered on the first part of what Jesus commanded them to do, to be witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. Here we are, six chapters in, and they're still in Jerusalem. And we just, at the very beginning of chapter six, we hit this before we took our pause for Christmas. We're introduced to a new character who we're going to hear about today. And this person's name is Stephen. 
And he was appointed to be a leader in the church in a position called a deacon, which essentially means servant. And his role, his job was, he was working with uh, kind of their outreach ministries. He was uh, caring for the widows and distributing few food and making sure that people in the church, when there's needs that need to be met, that was one of his jobs to use his wisdom and grace and all of that to help meet those needs. Now, Stephen, the interesting thing about him that was different than everyone else we've really met in the book of Acts to this point is he was a, a, he was a Jew, Jewish follower of Jesus, but he was actually of Greek descent. So he was not his bloodline. He wasn't um, Hebrew in the sense of grew up there, native to what we know of Israel to this day. He was a Greek Jew following Jesus. And so that's the first hint that now we're seeing the mission maybe is going to start extending outside of Jerusalem. So we inter we're introduced to him in chapter 6 and 7. And the events that happen today are actually going to now propel the mission and force the church to lo no longer be witnesses only in Jerusalem, but it's going to extend out starting uh, really what we'll start seeing next week. But today is the turning point. So that's who Stephen is. Now, Stephen is described in verse uh, 5 and in verse 8, and he's given four different descriptions. It said that he is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, and he's full of grace and full of power. So if you're looking for, like, the ultimate staff person at a church or the ultimate volunteer, the ultimate person, you have someone who's full of faith, the Holy Spirit, grace, and power. That's a great resume. So that's who, who Stephen is. He obviously has a lot going uh, as far as his heart for the Lord, the way he lives that out. And he's known as a person full of the spirit and grace and power and faith. So that's a little bit of what we have. That's a little who Stephen is. Now, Stephen is going to be accused by some Jewish leaders to the, today. He's going to be accused by people who are against the message of Jesus. And they see how so many people now are converting and becoming followers of Jesus. And there's this movement that's rapidly expanding. And others, some that we find, and we've seen it throughout the first few chapters, those who are trying to hold on to their power and their religion and all of that are having increasingly, um, or increasing amount of tension with Christians. And we find here in chapter 6 that they accuse Stephen of being a follower of Jesus. And they say this, and look in verse 13. This is their accusation against him. They bring him before what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, essentially the, the ruling council of the Jewish uh, faith, of the temple, of the priesthood. There'd be about 120 leaders there. And this would be representatives of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. If you've read through the New Testament before, maybe you've heard some of those terms. These are kind of the elite leaders in the priesthood of the Jewish faith. And they have this giant council that Stephen is brought before, and they accuse him of this in verse 13 of chapter 6. They say, this man speaks against the holy place, and that's speaking about the temple in this one. He speaks against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So their accusation was he is against the holy place, which is the temple and the, this kind of Jerusalem-centric view of faith. And say he's speaking against that, and he's going to alter our customs. He's going to change the way we, we carry out our faith and our religion. He's, the way he's telling us and teaching us is different than the way we want to live it out. So that's our main accusation against him. Now, 
if you were accused of these two things, it would make sense that the first thing you would do is say, no, 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 let me explain my view of the temple. Let me explain my view of the customs and kind of go into a defense. But in chapter seven, we're going to see Stephen's defense, but he really doesn't directly address either accusation. In fact, he goes into the longest speech that we have in the book of Acts. And it seems a little bit disconnected from the accusations. And so I'm going to attempt today to, to demonstrate there's three different things that he's trying to communicate through this. And he's going to kind of do it through this thread. There's three little threads that are interwoven through the whole thing. It's a complicated speech when you're trying to find out like, okay, what's your point? Sometimes on a Sunday morning, you know, when you're listening to me talk and you say like, what's your point? That's what people were hearing when they heard Stephen preaching. So I'm going to do my best to help you see what his point was as he's walking through. And there's three themes that are going to be interwoven throughout the entire 60 verses of chapter seven. Again, we're not going to read them all, but we're going to get to that. So Stephen's response is a roundabout way of addressing his accusers. And essentially, here's what he does. is he goes all the way back to Abraham, who was the founder, they would believe, of their, their faith. And he starts telling the story of Abraham. Then he'll tell the story of Joseph. You don't have, this won't be on the test, but we're going to repeat this. So he tells the story of Abraham, of Joseph, of Moses, and he gets to the law in the tabernacle temple at the end. So he's going to use those examples of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the law, and tabernacle. And through that, telling the whole story, he's weaving some ideas that are indirectly and ultimately directly addressing their accusations. So that's what we're going to try to get to. And, and he keeps going back to each of those three characters, or he uses those three characters to weave the same, the same message. So let's get started. Here's the first thing that he tells them in defense, and it's not directly, he doesn't use these words, but this is something that we see through his speech. It's the first thing that we find is Stephen tells them that God's mission is a progression pointing to Jesus. In other words, God's mission for people did not stop in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, that he, that's all that he's addressing. It's not just about Abraham's story. It's not just about Moses and the law. It's not just about Joseph. But actually, that's the beginning of God's progression of his story that he's been unveiling to us. So we're going to see how he now will do that. And to do that, we need to, I just want to remind you of the story, the biblical storyline that we want to always rehearse because you want to remember that this is part of the story of the Bible. Anytime we read in scripture, we're reading some part of this story. The overarching storyline of the Bible is God created the world so that you have creation and he created it in perfection. It w- in perfection, not imperfection. That sounded wrong. So everything was perfect as he created it. Relationships with one another, with God, etc. And then we have what we call the fall. So you have creation and then you have fall. Fall is when essentially we talk about sin entering in. And this is in Genesis chapter 3. And then the third part of the biblical storyline, which is the bulk of the storyline, is a story of redemption. And that's where God enacts, you could think of it as plan B. Plan A was creation, but the fall and sin interrupts it. So the rest of the Bible is how God is using plan B to redeem and restore that which is broken. And that is our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, even how we relate into the very circumstances and environment in which we are in. And through that story of redemption, 
that's where we're introduced to Abraham. And that's where Stephen picks it up. And he's showing God called Abraham, who became the father of the nation of what we now to this day know as Israel. In their context, it was father of the Jewish people in that family. The purpose of calling Abraham was to create a people that God would say, you are my people who will represent my ways to the rest of the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you see God actually gives a blessing to Abraham and says, you are going to be blessed, and through you, the the ends of the earth will receive blessing. Meaning, through you, I'm calling you and your descendants to be my people who will bless the ends of the earth as you live out your lives in God-honoring ways through throughout and how you interact with one another. So it's the beginning of the story of redemption. So Stephen reminds them, hey, God started with Abraham. And then he goes to Abraham's great-grandson, whose name was Joseph. He says, oh yeah, and then remember Joseph? Joseph was rejected by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. But that rejection and being sold into slavery in Egypt, he actually rose up and ultimately, Joseph was positioned there to rescue the Egyptians from a famine as well as the family of Abraham, who later at that point was Joseph and his family, his parents, or his, yeah, his parents, his siblings, were all rescued because of Joseph being rejected. God used it to ultimately save them from famine. So Stephen recalls that story. Again, I'm telling you, there's a lot of information at the beginning. Then Stephen continues to preach, and he goes, okay, now let me tell you about Moses. And he starts telling about Moses. Moses was left for dead. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's household. Later, he was rejected by his own people, and he fled to the wilderness called Midian, where he uh, had two kids. And ultimately, Moses, who was rejected, came back and led our people out of slavery. So he's preaching to the Sanhedrin. These are like all the Bible scholars of the day. Stephen is pretty much telling them what they should already know. Ultimately, he says, now Moses went out to the desert. He received the law, received the law. He built a tabernacle. That was this tent that represented God's presence. And ultimately, all of this happened before we ever entered back into the land that we're in now. And then Stephen said, and he ties it in right at the end. Oh yeah, and then David, King David, wanted to build a temple, but he didn't, his son did. That he, he uses one line to kind of end the story. But all of this, what he was saying is you are so hung up. You say I'm changing the customs. You think it's all about what just happened in the first five books. But Stephen is reminding them that God has been unveiling his plan from the very beginning. His plan of redemption, starting with Abraham, was just the beginning. The law was just a part of it. Later, the prophets start speaking of this fulfillment of the law, and all of it ultimately was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to the culmination of the story that was found in Jesus. And what Stephen was trying to tell them is, hey, God's been at work. Don't get stuck in just the past. I want to give you a little illustration. This is hard to do without a cordless mic. I'm learning. I'm learning how to do this outdoor stuff. Okay, so this year I was uh, visiting my parents' house. They live up in Seattle. And we were looking through uh, a closet, and I found this old jacket that is from this really mean baseball team called the Baldwin Bandits. Yes, it looks like an ice cream cone, but we were tough. 
And yes, this was my team from eighth grade. And I found that coat and I thought, oh, that's cool. I'm going to bring that home. You guys are wondering if my eighth grade coat will still fit me, huh? Oh, yeah, it fits like a glove. So, <laughs> so I, I grabbed this and I brought this home. Yeah, now I wear it on my motorcycle all the time. No, I don't. So, yeah, see, it fits perfectly. I won't try to button it in front of you. But it, it has shrunk in time. That's, that's what happened. So, anyway, so... I was thinking of this and remembering when I brought this home, I kind of was laughing and thinking, oh, it's kind of cool to still have this archive of an 80s sports coat and an 80s team. And uh, remember that I loved being on that team. I was a shortstop on that team, one of the pitchers, and it was so fun. We had a great time. And then remembering back, like, you know, eighth grade is a, it's mostly a pretty fun time in life. There's really, you don't have to think about much. Right, you just you go to school, and my lunch money was always sitting a dollar ten, was what what my lunch was every day. I don't think they're that much anymore. So I remember every day I'd you know go buy my lunch and come home, play sports, hang out with friends. Like that was life. It was pretty good. So if you're in eighth grade, you know, enjoy where you are right now. I know junior high is not always fun, but it, there's some fun moments. So I was thinking back of this team, and it was part of my journey. I was a baseball player. I loved to play. Later, ended up coaching a lot in college. I did an internship in a junior high school, coached that team, coached my kids. And it was part of my journey. But if I look at this and think, this, this, is, this is my identity. This is the culmination of who I am. I'm a Baldwin bandit. If I was still walking around with that identity, you guys would look at me like, hey, um, Ryan, you know, 1988 called. And uh, <laughs> it's moved on. And in a roundabout way, what Stephen was saying, first service, I didn't have the stand and I couldn't take it off. It was kind of stuck on me. That's what I learned. In a roundabout way, what Stephen is, was saying to them was, hey, God has used the events of the past. He used our patriarchs. He used the law. But it all was a step in the journey that he was pointing to something greater. And it's so easy to get stuck and hang your hat on your heritage, to hang your hat on a moment of, in time or something that used to work. Or, oh, yeah, I grew up going to a church, so that makes me who I am. That makes me, that's all that makes me who I am today. It's part of the journey. But Stephen's saying the past was just part of this. Don't put your confidence in what Abraham did or what Moses did or even the law. God was pointing to an ultimate, a bigger answer, a better answer for you and for me. And so the first lesson that we find today is this lesson is find your confidence in the work of Christ, in the completed work of Christ. What Stephen knew and understood was that what Christ had done fulfilled everything that the law was pointing to, everything that Abraham was longing for. All of those promises were fulfilled in Jesus. It's not just about the past, guys. It's not just about the law or about the Baldwin bandits. <laughs> By any means. So that's the first thing that this thread that we see through there that he is explaining to him that God's mission is a progression, that this was all pointing to Jesus. The second thing that we see that's a thread through, again, the same people, it's through the Abraham story, Joseph, Moses, law, tabernacle, was he shows them that God's work was not limited by time and space. That God's work was not limited by time and space. So interesting, when you read this whole passage, Stephen calls out, he, he's very specific on each of these characters to mention that the blessings they received and the calling that they received happened outside of what 
they were calling the Holy Land. It all happened outside of Israel. He starts off and he says, Abraham was called when he was living in Mesopotamia. On your geography test, go ahead and find that. Then he talks about Joseph. He says, Joseph was sold into slavery and he was in Egypt. In fact, when God blessed Joseph, when he came to power, when Joseph uh, accomplished the works that God called him to, it was in Egypt. And then he makes a really, this is for those of you who are scholars of scripture and like the intricate details, he mentions that Joseph was buried in this town called Shechem. Shechem was where Joseph was buried, but it was not, it was a Samaritan town, not what would be in Israel proper. And he calls that out. It's really interesting that he uniquely called that out because he's trying to demonstrate that God was at work in many places that were not confined to Jerusalem or the temple or as one sacred space. So he talks about the Joseph story. Then he talks about Moses' story. He says Moses was in Egypt. When God called him and appeared to him in this form of the burning bush, he was in Midian. When Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt, they were wandering in the desert, and Stephen specifically calls out and says he received the law on the holy mountain. The holy mountain Many of the Jewish people would want to say, yeah, that's here, that's a temple, that's Jerusalem, but the holy mountain was Mount Sinai outside of their land. He said, we wandered in the desert, we had a tabernacle where God temporarily, where he represented his presence. All of this, all of these blessings, all of the work of God happened outside of Israel. So God was not limited to a time and space. And he actually quotes in verse 45, he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 1, and I'll read that. I have it on the screen for you. Isaiah 66, verse 1, Stephen quotes this and says, and this is God speaking, and says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hands have made all things, and all things came into being, thus says the Lord. But to this is the one whom I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. So in the middle of this story, Stephen stops and says, you're so caught up in the temple, but God himself told us, you know this. He doesn't dwell in a place, in a house that you build with your hands. And he doesn't respond to someone who's just going through the motions, but God is looking for the one whose heart is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. And so... If God is not confined to time and space, the lesson that we learn that we see here in Stephen's story is that God's spirit and power dwells in you. That's the new reality in Christ, that God's spirit and power doesn't dwell in a temple. It's not in a holy land, it's in you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, do you, not know, do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is now in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore glorify God with your bodies. So this idea that Stephen was saying is breaking down their temple-centric view of the world. God isn't confined to time and space. And now the new reality is he dwells in his people. So the first thread was God's mission was a progression. The second thread we see is that God is not confined by time and space. And the third progression or thread that we see through his speech was this. People have a history of turning away from God. People have a history of turning away from God. In each of those narratives, or each of those characters, he shows them 
how they had been rejected by their own people. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers who understood the value of this family. Moses was rejected by his own people. He was a place of high status, and they rejected him. Even the law, when it was given, one of the first things the Israelites did when Moses was receiving the law, and when I talk about the law, we're talking starting with the Ten Commandments. One of the first things that happened is the Israelites built these two golden calves and worshiped them as their own gods. Can you imagine seeing God create or lead you out of slavery and demonstrate these great miracles and show up in many ways and then someone says, oh, you know who God is? Let's make a couple golden calves. That's the God who led us out. Let's worship that. And everyone goes, okay, that sounds good. Are you kidding me? So Stephen actually reminds them of that story, which by the way, the uh, rabbis and the the Interpreters of the Old Testament in the time of Stephen tried to change that story, not in scripture, but they would interpret it different ways. Oh, the ones who were worshiping the golden calves, that wasn't actually us. That was, it, it was interesting that they just couldn't see it. They didn't want that to be a part of her story. But Stephen calls them out with it. He demonstrates that, hey, people have a history of resisting what God's up to, resisting the spirit and turning from him. Look how he culminates his speech. So in verse 51. So Stephen just gave 50 verses of history of the Jewish people. And in verse 51 is how he culminates his, it's the end, it's the climax of his speech, which by the way, if you are in a debate with someone and you're trying to convince them and share your viewpoint, I do not recommend ending your case, ending your argument the way Stephen ends in verse 51. Check it out. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're just doing what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, that means Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you now have become. You received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. So I think this is in the book, How to uh, Win Friends and Influence People. I think it's pretty much, this is one of the lines. You stiff-necked and stubborn-hearted people. What's wrong with you? You always do, you have a history of resisting God. It's interesting that Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. He said that the things that I want to do, I don't always do. And the very things I don't want to do, I end up doing. He said, my spirit is at war within me with my flesh. See, there's this tendency in the hearts of all of us to resist God and to turn away. This battle between what's true of us, our new selves, and our old self. And Stephen is actually pointing out, like, hey, listen, you've always been resisting. You have, we all have this history of resisting and turning from God. It's part of our DNA. So a lesson for that point for us would be, let's develop habits that point us back to Jesus. I talked about that last week, but I want to encourage you. Our hearts are prone to wander, as the old song says. It's just natural. We need to develop habits that keep pointing us back to the truth of Jesus. We talked about last week, 
Keep immersing yourself in scripture. Keep immersing yourself in prayer. Keep immersing yourself with other people who believe the same. Young people who are with us today, high schoolers, junior hires, I want to encourage you. One of the most difficult things you'll find is staying strong in your faith. And one of the best ways to do it is continue to be around people who are on that same journey with you. Don't give up hanging out with Christian friends. Don't give up hanging out with people who are, who are sharing that faith with you. You're going to have questions pop up. You're going to have crises of faith. But it's journeying with others that help you stay strong. And when you find, just recognize your heart is prone to wander. All of ours are. So let's have those habits that point us back to Jesus over and over again. So let's look at how the story ends. So Stephen gives them the whole story. He calls them stubborn and stiff-necked and all this. Now verse 54. When the people heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. It's quite a sight. Just grinding your teeth, just burning with anger. How dare you call us out? But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this was actually imagery that Stephen was taking from Daniel chapter 9. And it was this very strong uh, uh, statement of who Jesus was, saying Jesus is the ancient of days, the one that was predicted that we're waiting for, the Messiah, God in flesh. That's who we're talking about, the Son of Man. And when the hearers heard this, when the accusers heard this, they're like, are you kidding me? Now you're, you're once again, this is blasphemy. You're claiming that this Jesus is God. And Stephen says, I see him standing at the right hand of the Father, which, by the way, is just a unique thing. Usually when Jesus is portrayed, he's sitting at that right hand of the Father, which is a position of authority and a position of being established. But he's standing here, which most people believe was symbolic of receiving Stephen into heaven, like this idea Hey, I'm welcoming, welcoming you in to what's about to happen, and we'll see how it ends. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse. When they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him to death, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we'll learn about in a couple chapters. They went on stoning Stephen as he, re, as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And this is kind of, so they stoned him to death. When, according to their law, if you had blasphemed against God, the punishment was to be killed through stoning to death with rocks, to clarify. And, and, but here's how they did it. This is in the handbook of how to stone someone to death. Was they actually would take you to the edge of a cliff or some sort of hill, which there's plenty outside of the Temple Mount. You'd get pushed off of that, and then they'd throw the rocks upon you from there. So as if there needs to be a handbook of how to do it, but this is traditionally how they would do it. They were not permitted to do this, by the way, in the Roman Empire. But this is a case where their emotions came, went beyond what they were permitted to do, and they did it anyway. And in their killing Stephen, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. Now look at this last verse. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep. Those last words 
may sound familiar to some of you who are familiar with Scripture. See, the last, one of the last words of Jesus as he hung on the cross was, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen has a similar heart. Lord, don't hold this sin against him. And the last little challenge that we see here in the life of Stephen, or encouragement, is the more we find ourselves surrendered to the Holy Spirit, the more we find ourselves walking with Christ, the more we actually represent his ways. We start to sound like Jesus, start to look like Jesus. What gave Stephen the power to say, forgive these people who are killing me? It wasn't something he was able to conjure up from within. It was this lifestyle of walking with the Lord, surrendering to the Spirit. And our, our desire as a church is that we may help people discover life in Christ. We do that through living the ways of Jesus in our community. And we can't live the ways of Jesus until the Spirit of God is working and living through us. It's already true of us that we can do this. But the more we learn to surrender to the Spirit and journey with him, the more the ways of Jesus become natural to us. We see this in Stephen. And so as we end today, we're going to end with a time of communion. And I want to invite the worship team up. Hopefully you received one of these on your way in. If you did not, we have some. Maybe someone could, uh, one of our greeters could grab one of the baskets. And if you need a communion element, we have these for you. We'll pass them around. We'll have someone come around in just a moment here. And communion for us is to remember the life of Jesus. It's to remember the promise that he made to you and to me through his life, his death, his resurrection. And communion is this ancient tradition in the faith that started 2,000 years ago where we remember through taking a piece of bread and through drinking from a cup, we remember what Christ has done. And so we're going to do that today. Hopefully you've, you received it. I see some people grabbing it in the back. There's some right behind me, I think. Sorry if, we, if you did not get one of these yet. So let's go ahead and take the bread out of the packets there. Oh, thank you. And as we take the bread, we remember the life of Christ. We remember the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And it's not just about his death. It's about his life. It's about his resurrection. Is that he had a real presence with us, among us, around us. And every time we take this bread, we remember that this life was real. And so today I want to encourage you as we do this together and take the bread. Let's remember the work of Christ. His death, his resurrection. The life that he gives to you and to me today. So let's take this bread together in remembrance of Jesus. Then we come to the cup for us, represented through juice. And as we take this juice, it, it, it's a reminder of the cup that Jesus took during the Last Supper. When he held it up after the meal and he said that this cup represents the covenant in my blood, meaning it's a promise that I'm going to make and it's going to be confirmed through what's about to happen in my life through my sacrifice for all of you. 
And so when we come to the cup, we remember that this is a promise that Jesus made, and it's a promise that cannot be broken. It cannot be broken by our unfaithfulness. It cannot be broken by our doubt. It cannot be broken by our actions. What Christ has done is more than enough. And so when he says, this is a covenant made with you, it's a one-way deal. Where Jesus says, my life is enough. So as we take the cup today, let's remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And let's remember that that's what wipes away all guilt, all shame. That all of our works have been made up for in Christ. And the works that he has done. So let's take the cup together and remember the covenant he made with us. Lord God, we thank you of the reminder that, Lord, in your life, your death, your resurrection, that all the works, that it is finished, that you are more than enough for us. So we thank you today, Lord, that we hang our hats on the work that you've done and nothing of our own. We thank you in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we sing a song in response and just remind ourselves of the life of Christ and what he does.